It is a pleasure uh, to be here with you and to bring a message from God's Word. Uh, this is uh, God has been working in my own heart, in my own life, and I just want to share with you some things that I've been thinking about, okay, what God has been uh, uh, sharing with me. We are in a transition. Life is full of transitions. New Life Church is in the midst of a fairly significant change. And of course, living here in Abu Dhabi, in some ways, it's like a constant change. We're always changing. Uh, we should be like uh, seasoned veterans, right? <laughs> it's just change all around us. Uh, our home group, I've been here for a little over four years, and I was sharing with the elders last night. Uh, our home group has been different every year, and sometimes even within the year, it changes significantly. Uh, it's, it's been different in terms of who attends, uh, where we meet, how we're organized. Uh, it's just always changing. If you've been in this church for more than a year, or maybe not even that long, I mean, just look around and you'll see that uh, there's some, a lot of people no longer here, and, and there's some people that are back. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, brother. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and there's also, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's new faces. So a lot of changing. At work, I'm, I'm the veteran at work. Everybody looks to me like I've been here four years. I mean, that's nothing. But here, that, that's a lot. At school, you know, my son, uh, the kids that were his friends, uh, they're gone, you know. And now there's new, new, new people. It's just very transient uh, here, and, and it can cause us to grow a very weary and even jaded. Uh, we, we can be calloused to what's going on around us. But listen, change is good, and it's even necessary. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And I think we see in this verse... God's process of changing us and transforming us. And how does he do that? He does it through the transitions of our life. And our life really is just one big long transition from one glory to the final one. And if we can think about it in that context, I think it will help us as we face the chaos of transition because that is what happens in transition. God, gives, God uses the friction of these transitions that we go through to transform us. He's trying to make us into what we ought to be, we're becoming, for His glory. We humans, though, we resist change, and so we resist God's transformation process. God's trying to do something, and we shouldn't resist it. Now, I do want to point out that some of us are addicted to newness <laughs> also. I mean, the continuity that we experience is sometimes a mirror that forces us to see ourselves. And we want to not see ourselves, and so we, we're obsessed with new things. We run from one new thing to another. That's not really what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the process that God uh, is putting in play in our lives to change us through transition. It involves, a transition involves something ending, something else beginning, and some chaos in the middle. 
That's what we're experiencing right now. And in your own lives, you're experiencing a lot of these things. We're, our lives are full of transitions. Big ones, little ones, just getting out of bed. That's a transition. It's hard to get out of bed. Sleep ends, rest ends, the dream ends. And you go through this period of chaos where you transform out of this hideous beast into something presentable to the world. <laughs> and you go to work, right? <laughs> getting out of bed, that's a transition. Uh, for me, getting out of the car is a transition. Because, you know, when, when the temperature's just right and the song is just right and you're, you're in a meditative, prayerful state and, or, or you're just rocking out to some song that you really like from, you know, when you were, you know, 19 years old or something, uh, whatever the case may be, sometimes when I pull up to the end of my trip, I don't want to get out. I don't want this transition. I'm resisting this transition because when I look out the window, there's other humans out there, and I like the solitude. I love solitude. My wife tells me I should have been a monk. Well, be that as it may, th that's a transition that we resist. But we have to go through it. We have to move through it. We can't stay there. We can't stop. We have to move forward and accomplish Allow God to accomplish in our lives what he's trying to do. Moving here, moving back home, a lot of people are moving home this summer. And many people just moved here. Our brother from South Korea just, just got here three weeks ago. It's a transition. It's difficult. Today I want to look at a short transition that's recorded uh, in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. It's a very familiar passage. Uh, it's a story that's worth revisiting, though. At the outset, I want to acknowledge that Luke's purpose in this passage uh, and the following passages afterwards is primarily Christological, and that's a fancy word that I learned in seminary that's just about the nature of Christ, okay? Luke is trying to tell us who Jesus is. This narrative is a window with a view into how Jesus revealed who he is to the disciples because they didn't know fully who he was, yet they were discovering. And so in this process, in this transition, they learned something. And that's what we need to realize in our transitions. We need to learn something new, a new revelation about who God is. Because that is what gives us the impetus to live and work and be what he wants us to be. We have to know him. We need a revelation about who God is. What is our purpose? Why are we here? I want to focus more on the implications for our lives. In other words, not necessarily Luke's Christological uh, focus, but how should we respond to the revelation of who Jesus is? How, what did the disciples learn and how did they respond and what can we learn from how they did that let's uh turn in your bibles if you would and let's read luke a uh, familiar passage chapter 8 and verses 22 uh, through 25 one day he got into a boat with his disciples jesus and he said to them let us go across to the other side of the lake so they set out and as they sailed he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake, 
and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. The title of my sermon today is The Transitions of Life. And the main idea, I'm not sure if we're synchronized today. Yeah, we are actually. The main idea is with Jesus in the boat, you can smile in the storm. Now, I wanted to ask Wendy to incorporate this into her repertoire of music. Uh, who knows this song? <laughs> I know you guys know it because your daughter sang it with me in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, this is, this is a powerful song. It's a children's song. With Jesus in the boat, you can smile in the storm. But it means something much different than what I originally thought it meant when I was a child and when I sang the song. Because Jesus calmed the storm. I thought that's why you can smile, and that's not why. And we're going to discover that in the passage today. With Jesus in the boat... You can smile in the storm. We have in this story a transition. Something ended because they set out for something new, and there's a period of chaos in between. And that's the transitions that we go through. So first of all, let's look at uh, verse 22. They set out. <clears throat> and that's how we're going to look at this. They set out. They were overcome. And they were amazed. That's just three things I want to talk about. It's vitally important that we step out and face the challenge of change. And I want us to recognize that that's what the disciples did. We cannot resist or run from God's process. Because if we try to resist or run, we get stuck in a holding pattern. And, we, and God tries to teach us the same thing over and over again. We have to move through, learn the lesson, see that new revelation, and move beyond it for his glory, for his honor. Let's look at why did the disciples even set out to begin with. It's important for us to consider that because this passage is traditionally, at least in my life, uh, when I've looked at it before, it's used to highlight a lack of faith in the disciples. But that's not what happened here. Jesus does say later, where is your faith? But here, we notice here that the disciples stepped onto the boat and followed Jesus. They left behind everything else. They had no reason to get on that boat except that Jesus was on the boat. They didn't really know, according to what I'm reading here, they didn't really know where they were going. Jesus just said, we're getting on the boat, let's go. Now, that takes faith and dedication. They left behind a lot. And we need to ask ourselves, why are we setting out? We see why they set out. The account in Matthew 8 is immediately preceded. The, uh, the parallel account of this same story in Matthew chapter 8 uh, is immediately preceded by a section which illuminates the cost of following Jesus. It's not in uh, this story in Luke. But in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 8, one 
individual announced that I will follow you anywhere, Jesus. And the implication is that he followed Jesus nowhere because Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's a cost in following Jesus. And the disciples, they paid the cost. They counted it, they paid it, they followed him. Verse 21 says, uh, there's an account where uh, one individual said, uh, let me first go bury someone in my family. Let me take care of something first. I have this or that to take care of, and then I'm right there with you, Jesus. And Jesus responded, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. There's a cost. Now, that doesn't mean we don't go to funerals, obviously, but there's a cost in following Jesus, right? And the disciples here, it's important for us to see that they saw it, and they disregarded the cost, and they followed him. And that's what we need to do. First of all, we have to set out on a mission following him, setting aside all that the world can offer. Because that is the beginning. That's the very beginning. Have we counted the cost and followed, decided to follow Jesus? Before we criticize the disciples for their fear later, because of what they did not know about Jesus. Let's first acknowledge their courage and sacrifice to follow Jesus based on what little they did know about him. They didn't know as much as we know, and yet they followed. It's important for us to also consider why did Jesus set out on this voyage, this transition. Matthew and Luke they just jump into the story. Uh, Luke here, he just like says, hey, one day they got into a boat. But there's a little bit of background information uh, in Mark's account, Mark chapter 4. In verse 1, Mark describes how Jesus is teaching a large crowd on the shore while he's on the boat. So he was on the boat teaching the crowd. That was his pulpit, the boat was. There was a large crowd. Jesus was seeking solitude. And so I, I, I can check that. I'm like Jesus in that. I like that. <laughs> but he, he was, he, he, Jesus, oftentimes, he would, he, would, he would go away by himself and, and to, for restoration and to strengthen himself because he was a man. He was human. Mark also says uh, in verse 36 about him starting this voyage, he says, and leaving the crowd. So we can see something in there about why Jesus started this journey. We don't know for sure. Did Jesus decide to set out because he was weary in his humanity, because he was human, or because he planned to reveal his deity? I mean, maybe it was both, but we can go crazy trying to figure that out but the bottom line is this. God's ways are unsearchable. At the end of it all, when we really try to figure out who Jesus is, he's more than we can comprehend. And all we can do is set out and follow him. And that's the question we should ask ourselves. Why are we setting out on whatever transition that we are uh, facing in our lives right now. Why are we, why have you, and why will you 
begin something new? Is it for money? Is it for leisure, the pursuit of pleasure, possessions of the world? Or are we following Jesus? See, only, only we can individually answer this question for ourselves because anything can be dressed up to look spiritual. But God knows in our hearts why we're setting out. In all of our transitions, in all of our movings here and there, we need to check our motives and be sure that we are setting out. We're on a mission to follow him, to honor him, to give him glory. It's extremely important. That's what the disciples did. I want us to notice also in verse 23 and uh, the beginning of verse 24. Let me wake up my iPad. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came upon, came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? I want us to notice some things about this situation when they were overcome. First of all, if I'm on a journey with you, like flying back to the U.S., and I go to sleep, and the plane's about to crash, don't wake me up, okay? Uh, like Freddy Krueger, welcome to my nightmare. You know, I, I just want to sleep through it. <laughs> but it's okay. They woke Jesus up, and it's probably part of his plan anyway. But I want us to notice that their struggle, it was an actual, real event. They were in danger. They thought they were dying. We can sometimes conjure things up, right? <clears throat> but they were in a life-threatening situation. They rightfully assessed that this is the end. And they responded in fear. It's important that we consider the disciples' actions in the middle of crisis and chaos. We can't, in the middle of our crisis, in the middle of our chaos, dig up old bones conjure up problems to detract from the actual problem. Imagine if they did that. There was no question that this was a real struggle. And if we have to say the struggle is real, then maybe it's not. No one there questioned that this was a real struggle. There was, there was no assessment of that at all. So if you find yourself constantly doing an assessment on what is real, in your struggle, then maybe you need to face the real problem, the actual situation. Our attention is being diverted. Don't throw up smoke screens to divert away from what's actually happening. <clears throat> it's important for us to have the right disposition in life because we, we all have problems, right? We've all, we've all been through some really bad things. And, and sometimes, sometimes we want to possibly uh, compare one, war wounds and, and, and attract sympathies. But our disposition should be this. Yes, I was broken, but I'm mending. See, that gives God glory. That honors Him for what He has accomplished. Yes, I was wounded, but I'm healing. 
I'm not wounded anymore. I'm healing. I'm on a trajectory that's going higher. God has called me higher, and he is accomplishing in me what he said he would do in me. And I'm going to stand and claim the victory that he has won on my behalf. I don't have to wallow in the mud. I don't have to try to attract any sympathy for all that I have been through. Yeah, my dad left us when I was six years old, but never mind that. He's the father of the fatherless. And yeah, I later learned when I was 10 years old that my dad sexually abused my sister. And I lived through years and years of anguish and being ostracized by the community and shamed in the community. But never mind that. Jesus came down and suffered humiliation of the cross. And he took my shame on himself. So I can stand and walk in victory. I'm not wounded. I'm not broken. I'm on my way to his victory. We don't have to stand there any longer. Do we need God to fix all the pain inflicted on us? He has. He just needs to fix our perspective now. See, he doesn't really need to fix our situation. He needs to fix our view on that situation. We can't be earthbound. We can't be thinking about the situation that we're in as if that is the end of us. Because it's not. He has an eternal perspective. He came to accomplish something eternal for us. And he doesn't want us to be so focused on this storm. But he wants us to focus on what he has done. Because he has power over everything that can hurt us. We're not victims. We're the perpetrators. He's the only victim. And he volunteered to be that for us. So does your life reflect a victim mentality? Or have you approached the throne of grace asking God to forgive you because you are the perpetrator? We know the right answer, of course. But what's the testimony of our life? And how do we determine what our life attests to exactly? I submit to you that it is through transparency. We have to own who we are and acknowledge who he is. Imagine if I was in the hull of this boat, or you were in the hull of this boat, and there was somebody with you who looks up to you. You're their mentor. And they didn't see the storm. They didn't see everything that was going on, but they knew something was wrong. Something is not right. And you turned to them, and you said, don't worry, it's okay. I would never let anything happen to you. I'm here for you. You know I love you. And the storm calmed. And they said, wow, you're my hero. The problem is later they're going to know the truth. And then where does that lead them? But what if instead you said, I'm sorry that I led you out here. I think I made some bad choices. 
But let's, let's pray to God. Maybe he'll save us anyway. Because, see, he, he doesn't hold it against us. Maybe God will have mercy. And then the storm calms. And now, who's the hero? See, God is the hero. God is honored. God is glorified when we're transparent. Do not rob God's glory by playing a hero or playing the victim. Either one, you're robbing him of his glory. Now, we can't actually unglorify God <laughs> because he is glorious, but we can with our lives agree and give witness to the fact of how glorious he is. Or we can influence others, detract their attention away from that truth. So in the chaos of life, let's just be honest. Let's just be who we are. Be real. Be transparent. And give God the glory. I'm going to share if I can. It's hard for me to read this. My son's getting married next week. And he committed to a life of purity. He's about to be 23 and he didn't quite make it. He got uh, engaged back in November. And his fiance is pregnant. And he called me a couple months ago and he first told me. And he was just broken. He, he was struggling. He said, why is it wrong? He said, we're getting married. And so we worked through all that. And I said, son, son, you got you to stand and face it. You got to be who you are. You just got to stand in there. A lot of people that you've, you've led down this path of your purity and, and you didn't make it, okay? But just, just own it. Man up. Own what you've done. And this is what he wrote. Now, I didn't realize he was going to go like, you know, nuclear on me and post it on the internet. <laughs> but these are his words. I want to read them. They're powerful words. And this is what transparency does for us. I'm... I'm so proud of him. And he is becoming, he is the kind of man that I'll follow. He posted this on their wedding blog. It's like an addendum at the end. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're getting married. And then this is the addendum. As Madeline and I entered into our engagement, our intentions were to pursue a relationship that reflected the image of Christ and was glorifying to the Lord during this vulnerable time as our hearts and our minds began to draw closer to each other. In the anticipation of our marriage, our focus began to turn to ourselves rather than the Lord. I failed to lead our relationship in the direction. That's transparency. I failed to lead. In the direction we knew to be right in obedience to God. And instead, we began to make compromises at the sake of our purity. I found myself trying to justify what we knew was sinful, and our spirits continued to draw farther away from the Lord. When we found out that Madeline was pregnant, God began the gracious, though often painful, process of exposing our sin. As consequence of our disobedience, the joy of a child was conflicted with our guilt and shame over sexual immorality. I, I didn't coach him. I just said, man up. With broken hearts, we asked for forgiveness and restoration in ourselves and in our relationship. We were painfully aware our need for grace beyond what we could deserve, and God revealed himself to be far greater than our sin. 
See, God is glorified. We found nothing but love and support from our parents. Teresa said we're winning when she read that part. Who continually pointed us towards the faithfulness of God and in his mercy, we found joy that we thought couldn't be possible. By his grace, we are humbled to share a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness and excited to announce we're expecting a daughter. That's courageous. That's owning it. That's transparency. And all the testimonies that he received following that were just so encouraging and empowering. And people were drawn to a deeper relationship because he was owning what he had done and giving glory to God for what God had continued to be faithful and do. And that's the power of transparency. We can't rob God of his glory. Just be real with one another. Let's be real. The struggle exposes our weakness. In our weakness, sometimes when we're in this chaos, sometimes we blame and accuse. In a parallel passage, one of the disciples said, doesn't he care that we're perishing? You can hear a little bit of accusation and blame in that, right? It's like we followed him out here and he doesn't even care about us. And sometimes in our chaos and in the struggle, we can become, you know, self-pitying and blame others. The struggle also reveals our ambition. Now, Jesus said, where is your faith? And I don't think that Jesus was saying, why didn't you believe I would calm the storm? That's not what Jesus meant. He wasn't trying to say, as in, you know, not does your faith exist, but where is it placed? And where your faith is placed reveals what the ambition of your life is, what the goals of your life are, what are we trying to do with our life. And what we fear exposes what we actually are trying to accomplish. Where is your faith, Jesus was saying. Some of these men were seasoned fishermen. And their faith might have been in their ability to overcome whatever. They, they were in their backyard. This was at the point of their strength. This is where they were at their best. And they were being hit right at the core of their identity as what they were able to accomplish in their own strength. And Jesus said, where is your faith? Did you really think that you were able to overcome these things? God wants us to learn that he is our only option to solve the real problem. Because we're focused on all these things that are around us that are maybe causing us some pain, some friction. But Jesus wants us to focus on what the real problem is, and that's an eternal problem. And we need an eternal perspective. We need to see actually what Jesus is trying to do. We can't depend on where the problem is not whether you have a good enough education 
or whether you have a high enough salary or whether your job is good enough. That's not the problem. Jesus was also not scolding them for not believing he would end the storm. He did say, where is your faith? Because the storm might be the end. It could be, this could be it. People die. Tragedy happens. I don't know what's going to happen in this transition at New Life Church. I don't know what God has in store. I just know that God is in control. I do know that. And Jesus does not want us to just put up this fake confidence that he will fix everything in this life. He has fixed eternity. And that's what he wants us to realize. He scolded them for fearing the storm. That's what he was scolded for or scolding them for. They were in fear of dying. And that revealed that their faith was not in God's ability to take them into eternity. It was a very earthbound faith. Earthly things were their ambition. Now, how do I know this is true? Because, or that Jesus wasn't requiring them to believe that the storm would be calm. I know that's true. Because Jesus doesn't always calm the storm. Peter was crucified upside down. That's horrible. That seems like a storm to me. Most of these men were killed violently. That's a pretty heavy storm. But Jesus wanted them to realize that that is not the problem. This storm is not the problem. The job is not the problem. The problem is what I came to solve is your, you and I's separation from God. Our sin is the problem, and he came to cure it. He is the cure for all the chaos, the big picture chaos. And that's why when we have that eternal perspective, we can smile in the storm regardless of the outcome. We don't smile in the storm because we know that it will be calmed in this life. We smile in the storm because we know that God holds our eternity in his hands, and we are safe, we are secure, we are his children. We will reign with Christ out into eternity. That's why we smile in the storm. That's why we endure hardship like a good soldier. And that's what Jesus was looking for in his disciples when he said, where is your faith? In what are you placing your faith? And in this transition at New Life Church, what are we placing our faith in? This chaos that we're in, collectively, together, whatever you're in, individually, with your family, God is trying to reveal himself in a new and greater way so that we will be able to smile in the storms for his honor and for his glory. Notice uh, in verse... Uh, 25, the last part of verse 25. And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? And that's the point that Luke is trying to get across. That's 
the revelation that Jesus wants them to see. Jesus wants them to know who he is. Jesus wants them to know what they should fear. Revelation inspires fear of God. Now, you can call it any kind of fear you want. All I know is when I read the Bible and people have an experience that is closely associated with God, the creator of the universe, they are afraid, as in trembling, afraid of him because of his power and because he is a consuming, purifying fire. And when we have a revelation of who he is, like Isaiah did, we fear. Thankfully, God loves us. He's merciful. And he wants us to see him and know that that power is available to us to save us. We don't have to fear death, illness, and the calamity. We only need to fear God. And a revelation causes us to do that. Revelation inspires worship. When we know him, we worship him. Revelation inspires growth. Like 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 said, that when all of these layers of the veil that blocks our view to who Jesus is begin to be removed, we are transformed from one level of glory to another. And whatever your chaos is, whatever your transition is, whatever process you might be going through, this is what God wants us to see. He wants us to have an eternal perspective on who he is and his power over everything that can harm you. The passages that follow, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. Jesus casts demons out of individuals. Jesus heals people of their illness. And he's trying to show them one by one by one, you don't need to fear any of these things any of these calamities in this life because I have power over all of it and I came to solve the real problem. It's an eternal problem. It's a problem with our soul and how we have been separated from God. In conclusion, I want to talk about uh, Perpetua. I've been studying <clears throat> church history and this, uh, this book is called Getting to Know the Church Fathers. I realized that as evangelicals, that's me, I think that's probably everybody here, evangelicals, this book taught me that we have neglected the rich heritage of our Christian faith that is encompassed in, embodied in the church fathers. Because we've we have these misconceptions about who they were, that they were Roman Catholic and not biblical, and it's just not true. Many of these preceded Roman Catholicism, and Perpetua, what's interesting about her is that she's not a church father because she was a mother. But she's one of the ten who are highlighted in this book. And her testimony, her life has really impacted me as I, as I uh, read about her and what, what she went through. But Perpetua was from an affluent family in Carthage at the, just at the turn of the century. And she was a mother, a, a new mother. She had a newborn child. She had a, a doting elderly father. 
Her life was in front of her. And you ladies understand uh, what was pulling on her heartstrings as a mother, a new mother. You understand what was at stake for her. Uh, Laura Dietz is, uh, she's, she's involved in a ministry that recognizes exactly what's at stake for these mothers. And it's called uh, Caring the Future. I think that's the name of it. And she goes to Jordan and other places where refugees are, are gathered. And, and she, she brings them baby carriers so that they can carry their children. It's powerful a ministry, and it highlights what was at stake for Perpetua and when she professed her faith in Jesus. And at the turn of the second century, that was illegal, so she was thrown in prison. And she was awaiting her trial, and her elderly, doting father took her newborn child down to the prison with him, hoping to convince her to stop this ridiculousness. Don't do this to us. And Perpetua, these are her words after he begged her. She said, on that scaffold where I will be tried or executed, she didn't know which, she didn't know if Jesus would calm the storm, whatever God wills shall happen. For no, that we are not placed in our own power, but in that of God. Perpetua was thrown into the arena. She was, she was mauled by wild beasts, but she wasn't dead yet. So what did Perpetua do? She put herself back together, bleeding, dying. She repinned her hair. And before she was executed, she was able to give testimony as to why. Because she didn't want to attract any sympathy in her hour of victory. See, she saw what was really happening. She knew what was actually the problem. And she, with all, everything that you can imagine before you as an ambition of life, she said, my life is in his hand. And whatever happens... I trust him. I believe him. I'll follow him. Whatever they decide to do to me, because I say that I will follow him. And she didn't, she didn't want any sympathy for that because she wanted to honor God. God gets the glory for that, for empowering her. And she was executed. Her storm was not calmed. But her final big storm was calm. She knew it already. And that was the whole point. See, Paul didn't believe that the storm would be calmed. How do we know that? He didn't believe that. He didn't have faith that God would stop the inflictions. No, he had faith in something much bigger than that. He recorded the words, and he said, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life See, this is what Paul is persuaded of. Not that the storm will be calmed. He's persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that's what our perspective should be, not the storm, but what God has rescued us from already. And we can stand and face anything without fear, without attracting any sympathy, and say God has already delivered us. God has already given us the victory. It's ours. And whether you're in prison like Paul was, and the words that he wrote from those chains demonstrated that he knew that his chains were already broken. There was nothing that anyone could do to him to turn him away from his path of honoring God. You see, with Jesus in the boat, with full revelation of who he is, what he has accomplished, not only can we smile in the storm, but for his honor and for his glory, not ours, we must smile in the storm because that demonstrates, it witnesses to what God has already done. We have nothing to complain about, nothing to complain about. If Perpetua had nothing to complain about, neither do I. If Paul had nothing to complain about, he just counted his blessings no matter what. He was content in everything. Neither do I. Neither do we. All indicators are pointing downward, right, for New Life Church. The finances. Sorry. Attendance. We need to be transparent, though. We, we, need, to, we need to walk in the light, as my, my brother Chris said. We have to walk in the light. Walk in the light of day. And be transparent. We need to acknowledge that some of those faces that we don't see sitting around here anymore, they didn't leave Abu Dhabi. They didn't leave the church universal. They left this church. And the elders, as we're meeting, we're acknowledging that, and we want to reach out to people in Christian love and say, look, brothers and sisters, we love you. What did we do to hurt you? Not to get them back. I mean, that would, if you flop, you know, you flip, you're a flip-flopper, but we're not trying to, you know, get anybody back, but we want to acknowledge that some things have been probably done to hurt people, and we want to be transparent. We have to do that. And that's when God is glorified, and that's when real revival happens in us individually and us as a church. When we are just stand and be real, acknowledge our sin with one another and before God. And God will see us through. Whatever it is, whatever happens, he is holding our eternity in his hands. And so we can just be happy and we can smile in the storm. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our privilege to know you and to serve you. And, and Father, we just acknowledge that we can, because of all that Jesus has done for us, we can just stand in victory. And we can endure any hardship that's in this life because of what you have done already in our lives and accomplished for us for eternity. We ask, Lord, that you would encourage us through this process and that you would empower us by your spirit, and that we would, Lord, uh, be honoring and glorifying to you in all that we do, all that we say uh, with one another, that our 
testimony as a church and individual lives would be one that reflects your power and the victory that you've won for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.